Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, a well-connected liberal propaganda blog makes a hash of a hit job against a conservative philanthropic officer, teachers' unions strike to preserve their education monopoly, and libertarians sue the government of Indiana and win a battle for property rights. Since the Russian government engaged in an interference campaign in the 2016 election, the establishment center-left, often criticized by both conservatives and socialists for being utterly bereft of ideas, has gone searching for evidence that some conservatives' recent and contemptible soft spot for Russia predates the current president's descent down the golden escalator. Using hacked emails—give them a point for irony—a writer for the Center for American Progress's Think Progress blog thought he had identified smoking gun proof. Dan Schmidt, then of the conservative Bradley Foundation, had attended a conference on family policy in Russia in 2014, also attended by Alexander Dugin, a man often credited as chief ideologist to Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. In the interest of full disclosure, the Capital Research Center has received grants from the Bradley Foundation and has worked with Schmidt. Speaking for myself, Schmidt messed up. By 2014, Russia had militarily intervened in at least two of its neighboring democratic states, Ukraine and Georgia, which it had invaded in 2008. After the invasions, it should have been patently clear that Russia is not a friend, and Putin-aligned ideologists are bad people, regardless of any possible common ground on the family between American conservatives and Russian fascists. Such common ground, by the way, is vastly overstated. To cite just one factoid, the pro-life Charlotte Lozier Institute reported in 2015 that Russia almost matched the annual number of abortions in the United States, despite having only one-third the population. But the attempt by CAP, itself allegedly not immune to being influenced by oppressive foreign governments, to impute Schmidt's error to the entire conservative movement, and even to Schmidt's broader career, is nonsense. As Capital Research Center's Mike Hartman and the Hudson Institute's Bill Chambra write, Bradley Foundation grant-making, which was supervised by Schmidt through 2016, was anti-Russia long before it was cool. During the late 1980s, preceding the fall of Soviet communism, the Bradley Foundation supported dissidents associated with Poland's Solidarity Movement and other Eastern European anti-Soviet movements. After the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, Bradley grants supported the building of civil society institutions in the new democracies and supported non-government-aligned organizations in Russia. For his part, Schmidt serves on the advisory board of the Ukrainian Catholic Education Foundation, which supports Ukrainian Catholic University in the Western Ukrainian, translation pro-Western European, city of Lvd. UCU's vice rector of university mission commended the recognition of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as clerically independent of the Russian Orthodox Church in 2018, a move that some observers identified as a spiritual strike against Russian efforts towards temporal hegemony in the region. For its part, in 2016, Schmidt's last year at the Foundation, the Bradley Foundation supported the following right-of-center think tanks best characterized as hawkish towards the Kremlin, or pro-NATO, or pro-Baltic states. Hudson Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Center for European Policy Analysis, the Hoover Institution, and the Heritage Foundation. And this list is not necessarily exhaustive. The brutal fact is that both major ideologies have put their short-run political interests ahead of geopolitical priorities in the past decades. Just ask Think Progress which ridiculed now U.S. Senator Mitt Romney for correctly identifying Russia as the United States' number one geopolitical foe during the 2012 election, when acknowledging that fact would have been inconvenient to President Barack Obama's re-election. After school officials in Los Angeles basically capitulated to striking teachers' demands to oppose new charter schools, teacher unions in Oakland and West Virginia walked off the job for the same reason, all but explicitly taking their fight from a dubious for the children to, straightforwardly, against parents. Oakland teachers walked off the job starting today, Thursday, February 21st. Among the union's complaints, the growth of charter schools. 
The union's core demand is a 12% raise. The school district is offered 5%. According to school labor relations analyst Mike Antonucci, there's essentially no way the school board can pay that much without assistance. It will take a leap of faith in his words. His description for support from the state, most likely, to cover the prospective funding shortfall. For its part, the West Virginia Education Association ordered a walkout to protest a proposed law which would have allowed charter schools to open in the state. How many charter schools? Seven. After the WVEA walked out, party-switching Governor Jim Justice, for now ostensibly a Republican but elected in 2016 as a Democrat, immediately capitulated. The bill was withdrawn. The strike ended after two days of missed classes. I, for one, am sure that Justice's capitulation had nothing to do with the support that the governor had previously received from the WVEA and the other teachers' union in the state, the West Virginia Federation of Teachers, in his previous election as a Democrat. WVEA's PAC and AFT West Virginia PAC had each provided Justice's campaign with $1,000 for 2016 elections. As part of its capitulation to United Teachers Los Angeles, Los Angeles passed a resolution calling for California to implement a short-term halt to the opening of new charters in the city. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten inadvertently gave the game away in her comments to Politico, saying, quote, charter schools should have to play by the same rules as traditional schools, close quote. Of course, the rules most relevant to teachers' unions are, of course, citywide monopoly union bargaining rules. Charter schools presently take advantage of independent labor relations because while they are publicly funded, they are privately operated as a choice within public ed education independent from the local school districts. By fighting charters in order to preserve their labor representation monopoly, teachers' unions prove that they are more about their dues collections than the children behind whom they so frequently hide. And in our final item this week, it just got harder for the government to take your property thanks to the work of the Libertarian Institute for Justice. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the 14th Amendment applied the 8th Amendment prohibition of excessive fines to the states in a case titled Tims v. Indiana. We took note of the case's argument in November. The state of Indiana had seized Tim's car under the controversial legal doctrine of civil asset forfeiture. Despite the car's value exceeding the statutory maximum fine for the drug charges he pleaded guilty to by fourfold. With assistance from Institute for Justice lawyers, one of whom argued his case before the Supreme Court, Tim's challenged the validity of the forfeiture order. And the Supreme Court held that the lower courts must reconsider his case and reconsider whether the forfeiture would be considered an excessive fine. The lower courts had previously held that the federal excessive fines protection did not apply. For what it's worth, if prior litigation in Tim's case is any indication, they are likely to find the seizure improper. Tim's had won such recognition in lower courts below the Indiana Supreme Court. And Tim's unanimous win wasn't the only good news for right-of-center nonprofit litigators from First Street Northeast this week. Supreme Court rejected an effort by a chain of abortion providers, Whole Women's Health, to obtain private communications by Texas's Roman Catholic bishops on abortion-related matters. According to the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which represented the bishops, Whole Women's Health subpoenaed the communications in retaliation for the Catholic bishops' support of a Texas pro-life law. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals had previously sided with the bishops and quashed the subpoena to obtain their private religious communications. This week, the Supreme Court rejected Whole Women's Health's petition to hear the case. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.